You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help me preach it tonight, that indeed we might behold your son Jesus and throw ourselves wholly upon his mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a real joy to be with you tonight, to join you as you journey through Exodus. I wish it were a more cheery section, because this is the absolute pits of the book of Exodus. Uh, and, but it's uh, also Guy Fawkes night. Do you know about Guy Fawkes? A uh, little, uh, little uh, party he wanted to throw by blowing up the Houses of Parliament. And, uh, and so uh, it's a really good night to uh, look at rebellion, which is exactly what we see in Exodus 17. Uh, we know that the whole Bible is about Jesus from start to finish, that everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah who would come. And the entire New Testament is the commentary on the Old Testament going back of the promised Messiah. It's all about Jesus. In order to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand the New Testament. And indeed, in order to understand the New Testament, you have to understand the Old. And I hope that as you've gone through the book of Exodus, you've seen Jesus all over the place. That he's at every turn. And tonight is no different. In fact, tonight uh, we get very particular where we find that the rock was Christ. Now, how do we know that the rock was Christ? We can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says this, verse 3. Let's go to verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So Paul is looking back on this particular incident in Exodus 17 and saying, Jesus is the rock that Moses has struck. Well, how could the rock be Christ? Well, to see the Lord Jesus as the rock in this passage, I think we need to carefully study the passage. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled. Uh, This is not uh, the first time uh, that the people were thirsty, that they wanted something to drink. This happened earlier in Exodus 15. I'm sure someone preached on that when they were in Morah. And now they're at a place, Rephidim, which means testing place. Uh, I mean, sorry, it means resting place, not testing place. That's what it would become known as. Uh, It's known, it was called a resting place. And obviously it's the worst resting place on the face of the earth. Uh, Because it's not very restful. In fact, there's no water uh, for them uh, to partake of. And the people of Israel, up to this point, should have known what they were to do. They were to gather and pray and then wait for God to provide. They'd already grumbled about, we don't have anything to eat. 
What does God do? He provides them manna from heaven, and he provides them meat at dusk. But instead of that, instead of gathering and praying and waiting for God to provide, they complain. This is the fourth time that we find them grumbling in the book of Exodus. But this kind of grumbling took their level of complaining to a new level of hostility. Because here we see that they began to quarrel. Striving against Moses and revolting against his authority. Uh, they go so far as to accuse him of what? In verse 3. Attempted murder. Have you brought us out here to kill us? And not just us, but, but our kids and our favorite cow and every, you know, our pets. I mean, what have you done? You're trying to kill us. But we see in verse 2, why do you quarrel with me, Moses asks. Why do you test the Lord? You see, their argument is not with Moses. Their argument's with God. They could not reject Moses without rebelling against God. Moses was God's chosen servant. Didn't mean that they accepted his leadership blindly. But here we see that where God has brought them to this place to test them, actually what ends up happening is the people say, we're going to test God instead. And Moses' leadership was not trying to gauge the interest of the people. Indeed, he led Israel to this place not because he knew where water was, but because that is where God told him to go. They're there because that's where God told Moses to lead the people. Not because Moses decided this would be a good place to go. They were putting God to the test. And elsewhere in the Bible, anytime Massa and Meriba is mentioned, it's in the negative. As I said earlier, this is the absolute lowest of the low in the Exodus story. In Psalm 95 we hear, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." This is a bad story. The people of Israel are in a bad place. And in their alleged desperation, they've set themselves up over and against not Moses, but actually God. And we're no different. All of our dissatisfaction in our own lives shows that we're disappointed with God. Because in reality, all of our complaints go straight to the top. Whatever our reason for our dissension, what it really shows 
is that we are not satisfied with what God has given us. And this is a great sin. It is not, it's not wrong to take our troubles to God, talking them over with him in prayer. The Bible encourages us to express our doubts and our fears. But God doesn't accept open revolt against his holy will or the refusal to trust in his perfect word. And so the Israelites make three statements. Each represents a different kind of complaint. The first one, give us water to drink. We're insisting on our own way. Not God, if it's your will, if it's your great pleasure, that you would give us something to drink. But God, give us something to drink. We're insisting on our own way. Now, how many of us do that? God, give me this. We might even try to bargain with God. But there's still a part of us that thinks, you know, God, I know better. If you would just give me this, then all would be well. I'd be happy again. But we know from the Exodus story, and even in our own lives, that that's not true. God, give us something to eat, and then we'll be fine. And then a chapter later, now give us something to drink. If you give a sinner a cookie... Second in verse 3, they deny God's protection. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? God, you've left us to ourselves. We're vulnerable and we're going to die here. But maybe the greatest accusation the greatest complaint in the verse that sticks out to me is there in our final verse this morning. Is the Lord among us or not? They begin to test God, doubting his presence. The Israelites suffered from, from spiritual amnesia. They had forgotten all that God had done in their lives and who he was. They were the ones who were supposed to be tested. But then they turned and they began to test God. It's no different in our own lives. How many of us ask, is the Lord among us or not? Many of us get to the point where we can only see what is wrong in our lives. We've not only lost sight of the positive past experience of God's presence in our lives, but we can't even see the good in front of us right now. That is our default position. I mean, this is the, the situation the disciples were in on Good Friday. I mean, how many of us could actually look up at Jesus upon the cross on Good Friday and say to our neighbor, it's a good Friday. No. God seemed as far away as he possibly could be. And yet the disciples and us too, we don't have the spiritual eyes to see that God was in fact reconciling the world to himself in that moment when he seemed furthest away. And yet we do it in little ways. 
We ask, why can't I catch a break? Or, this always happens to me. Forgetting just how good God is in our lives. I mean, you read the writings of Martin Luther, and he would talk about waking up every morning rejoicing. Because he was a super Christian? No. Because he didn't die in his sleep. I mean, modern people have lost any sense of wonder or enchantment in our world. Everything has been explained to death. And so when was the last time you and I were overwhelmed with God's goodness? That we were floored by God's glory? But instead, we feel like things aren't going our way. Why is my job not panning out? And we can't even see God working right in front of us. I've been walking through 2 Timothy recently, and uh, it's meant to be a great letter of encouragement for Timothy, but I've realized just how discouraging a letter it is. (laughs) Because Paul actually tells us that the default position of a Christian is discouragement. Now, isn't that an uplifting statement to make? Well, it is. I mean, of course we experience joy and, and life in, uh, in having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we shouldn't be surprised when we're afflicted. And we often try to sugarcoat things. This is the opposite side of the same coin. I have a friend in ministry, he's now 92 years old, serving in London named Dick Lucas. And back in the early 1950s when Dick Lucas was first in ministry, he was at a church in Seven Oaks, a suburb of London just to the south, and he was on a train uh, coming uh, from Seven Oaks up to London, and he saw a man get on the train with this enormous Bible. And back then, that was the trademark of someone who was in the missionary field. If you were a missionary, you made sure you had a gigantic Bible. And so there he was, and he put it on his lap, and he began to engage him in conversation, and it turned out this man was, in fact, a missionary with China Inland Mission. And it was the early 1950s, and the man began to say how the communist government had expelled he and all the other missionaries from China. And Dick began to say how very sorry he was, and and how... Uh, he would be praying for him, and how, how discouraged this missionary must be after all of that work in China, only to be thrown out. And the man looked at him quizzically and said, not at all, because I believe that this is part of God's plan for China. Now, no doubt, the missionaries did a good work, but the expulsion of the missionaries from China actually did what? It caused the church to explode in China. Uh, The Chinese took on the leadership of the Chinese church, and the more that the communist government tried to clamp down on them, the more the spirit moved and brought people to a living and saving faith in Jesus Christ. The The way God actually advances his work is often through discouragement. The gospel is often advanced by defeat, 
not victory. The gospel is often advanced by rejection. And so whether we're trying to sugarcoat our discouragement or whether we're an Israelite grumbling in the wilderness, what is God's response to that? Because actually the the language here used is that of a covenant lawsuit against God. They want to put God on trial. Whereas C.S. Lewis said, they want to put God in the dock. God, where are you? Have you brought us out to kill us? And so Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Meaning they've already passed their verdict in their hearts and I'm going to be the one who's killed for it. On the one, you can understand Moses' predicament. You can understand why he's discouraged. But also you can see that grumbling and complaining is contagious. And Moses has caught it. And so here is God on trial. And what is his response? Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in sight of the elders of Israel. What does God do? God takes it upon himself. Where is God in all of this? Well, he says, I'm going to stand on the rock, and I want you to strike the rock. Christ is the rock. And so God actually takes the punishment upon himself. He had every right to drop the rock on the people of Israel. How many of us would put up with this? Not at all. But as a father cares for his children, he doesn't get stuck in quibbling over what it is that he simply provides at the expense of himself in the same way that Jesus Christ was struck down upon the cross for those who loved him not. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ came in the world to save sinners. So maybe some of us are discouraged tonight some of us grumbling, some of us wanting to quarrel with God. And God's response is to be our rock and our refuge. He is our provision, our protection, and he is our presence. Is the Lord among us or not? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. If we're looking inwardly for an assurance that God loves us and that God is for us, we're going to be led astray. If you want proof that God is going to provide for you, that he's going to protect you, that his presence is going to be with you, then look upon Jesus. 
That is the objective proof that God is with you and that God is for you. And no matter how far out in the wilderness of sin you are, God is your rock. Let us pray. Uh, Lord, we grumble, we complain, and we're afraid. We're afraid that you might not be there. And so, Lord, that we would not look to ourselves, but we would look upon the dying one who gave himself up for us to show us what love was and what love is and to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. And it is in Jesus, the rock's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.